It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. President Biden said that there was reason to believe Uh, that the 300,000-strong Afghan National Army, which was, he said, as well-equipped as any army in the world, could hold out for up to a year against the advancing Taliban forces. They didn't last a week. Just two days after the Pentagon said there was no imminent threat, this evening, Taliban fighters are sitting in the president's chair in Kabul. I mean, literally, with their weapons, sitting in the president's chair. The United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said there will be no comparison between Kabul in 2021 and Saigon in 1975. But, in fact, comparison there is. And it's not a flattering one. The United States scramble out of Kabul beats even the scramble out of Saigon in many important particulars to which we shall turn over the course of this show. But I want to leave you in this monologue with some thoughts of some importance. First of all, compare and contrast uh, the fighting performance of the 300,000 strong so-called Afghan, so-called national, so-called army uh, with the Syrian Arab army, which for 10 years against a far superior, far better armed insurgency backed by the world's most powerful countries fought on and on and on and ultimately prevailed a Sunni Arab army fighting to defend a secular Arab state headed by a heretic Shiite, according to the descriptions of the Takfiri terrorists, the Taliban of their day, that were invading, desecrating, massacring, torturing, and mutilating the people of Syria. Just think about that. Ten long years the Syrian Arab army fought. The Afghan National Army did not fight for ten days after the final offensive was launched. Second takeaway is this. Compare and contrast the attitude of Russia to its ally Syria with the attitude abandonment by the American patron of its ally in Afghanistan. And don't think that that comparison will have been missed by any of the satrapies that currently shelter 
under the umbrella of American imperial power. The Russians stood by their ally, the Americans abandoned theirs. And the so-called president of Afghanistan has already flown out of the country to neighboring Kyrgyzstan, though that is unlikely to be the final watering hole that he chooses for his long exile. He's likely to end up somewhere near you, as are tens, scores, maybe hundreds of thousands of refugees that are already on the march into Pakistan, into Iran, two countries which simply cannot hold or sustain them. These refugees will not stop marching in Iran or in Pakistan. They're marching towards you. Just one of the reasons why I opposed 20 years ago in Parliament and on the streets of London and other cities, rarely on the media, because even then our anti-war message was heavily censored and often lampooned. It's one of the reasons why I said that invading and occupying Afghanistan was a bad idea of historic proportions. Now, what do I think of the Taliban? Let me tell you what I said in Parliament almost exactly 20 years ago. In an award-winning speech, I described the Taliban and the excrescence of Al-Qaeda, which they had clasped to their bosom, that these people were medieval, obscurantist savages. And nothing that has happened in the last 20 years has made me resile from that description. It's not because I liked the Taliban, I loathed the Taliban. I was opposing the fathers of the Taliban when Britain and America were stuffing weaponry and money and propaganda support down their throats. These medieval obscurantist savages were our boys back in the 1980s. On the eve of the fall of Kabul, to the fathers of the Taliban, I told Mrs. Thatcher, you have opened the gates to the barbarians and a long dark night will now descend upon the people of Afghanistan. And so it proved. I mention all this not to bask in the rapid 20-year vindication of everything that I said, but to try and persuade you to persuade your politicians to listen to those who know. If I knew a graduate of the University of the Streets from a council house in Dundee that no good could come of our patronage of these savages, how could the Oxford Blues of the British Foreign Office and of the government front bench and of the opposition front bench. The House was virtually unanimous 
about that policy, but I and others, a few others, knew that it would lead to terror, tears, and blood. And so it did. And so when I argue for a fresh approach, now that the Taliban are in control, it's not because I like them, I still loathe them. But I want to avoid Afghanistan becoming again a launching pad for international terrorism, pan-Islamist terrorism, which imperils us all. And I have some ideas as to how that can be done. But permit me uh, this observation. Our countries are led by fools. Jacob Rees-Mogg has recalled Parliament for next week. <laughs> next week. He must have listened to the Pentagon spokesman who said there was no imminent threat. What's he going to say and do in Parliament next week? Joe Biden. What did he think would happen when he symbolically, for that's all there was left by the end, symbolically withdrew 2,500 American soldiers? The Taliban were just waiting for the queue. It's not that that 2,500 American soldiers could have stopped a Taliban advance, but they didn't want the complication of having to fight their way through every last dead American to come to power. As soon as Joe Biden began that withdrawal, the queue was there for the Taliban to advance. And another dark night will now descend upon the people of Afghanistan. There'll be no more lipstick in the restaurants of Kabul. In fact, there'll be no more women in the restaurants in Kabul. There'll be no more women in public life at all in Kabul, Kandahar, Mazar-e-Sharif, or any of the towns and cities in Afghanistan. Women, metaphorically speaking, are about to disappear. There'll be no women in universities. Matter of fact, there hasn't been many women in universities or in public life over this last 20 years. The only time women could freely live in Afghanistan was in the short period in which a government ruled that Britain and America and other Western countries destroyed. That was the only time you could really safely wear lipstick if you were a woman, open a book, if you were a woman. Dream of becoming a doctor or a scientist if you were a woman. That's why I feel so bitter about our role in the 1980s in Afghanistan. I now watch, particularly on American TV, but also here on social media, a long parade of feminists who had nothing to say about the woman whose head was blown off in front of her children by B-52s, by cruise missiles. They're even more savage than the obscurantists of the Taliban. They had nothing to say about the destruction of that golden era 
in Afghanistan that was portrayed as the anti-Soviet war, but was in fact a golden age, the only golden age that there has ever been in Afghanistan. Permit me this observation. We, if we pursue the policy we have been pursuing of ostracism, sanctions, destabilization, subversion, siege, and even war against the new Afghanistan, it will turn out just like the old Afghanistan. Now is the time to pursue a different course. Let everyone diplomatically recognize the new government in Kabul. Let every embassy open and function in Afghanistan. Let not the aid stop, but flow. This time not military aid, $2 trillion has been blown in Afghanistan. Let's kill the people of Afghanistan with kindness. Let's cooperate with Afghanistan's neighbors instead of trying to use Afghanistan against her neighbors. Let's deal with and coordinate with the government of Pakistan, of Russia, of China, of Iran, who all border Afghanistan so that an international package can be properly implemented in Afghanistan. Because I've got a poll up what happens next. Another 9-11, another kind of Taliban, or another war. The Afghans have been fighting wars against foreign occupiers for millennia. As I've often told you, even Alexander the Great did not successfully occupy Afghanistan. And Boris Johnson and Joe Biden sure ain't Alexander the Great. Enough of war, enough of fostering Al-Qaeda and ISIS-type terrorism as long as it's aimed at somebody else. Let's try a new approach. Let's recognize the new government of Afghanistan. What choice have you got? They already are the government of Afghanistan. The question now is what kind of Taliban ruled Afghanistan is there going to be? Forget ideas about democracy and, and liberalism. That ain't going to happen. The only legitimate interest as a state, not as individuals, but as a state that we have now with Afghanistan is to preclude it becoming again a base for international terrorism that harms other people beyond their borders. That means keeping ISIS out, keeping Al-Qaeda out, making the new power in Kabul realize that there is more to gain from international cooperation than there is from international opprobrium and condemnation. That's my thesis. I'll defend it against all comers in the course of the show this evening. I expect Afghanistan to dominate 
the show this evening. Uh, but it is not the only show in town. Prince Andrew, the son of Her Majesty the Queen, within, I think now, about 17 days, must enter a defense to a case brought by a woman who was illegally trafficked for sexual purposes from the United States to the United Kingdom by definitely Jeffrey Epstein and allegedly also Ghislaine Maxwell. The attitude of the royal family to date has been to complain about nothing and to explain nothing. That might work in the deferential media operation in Britain. It will not work in the court in New York. And if we are to avoid uh, the surely supreme indignity of the son of the queen being found guilty by default of a sex trafficking crime with all the consequences that will flow from that, the royal family better get their ass in gear and very, very quickly. And there's much else. I could talk about Britain's finest film director, Ken Loach, being booted out of Keir Starmer's Labour Party, but why bother? Anybody that's still in Keir Starmer's Labour is a fool or a knave. One by one by one by one, they're all being politically eliminated. And still you've got people hanging on in there for what they never, ever explain. I will be talking later about the latest monstrosity of the separatist government in Scotland, which has introduced new regulations which will compel teachers in Scotland if confronted with a child as young as four years old who tells them they'd rather be Arthur than Martha to allow that child so to identify and to use the boys' toilets and the boys' changing rooms and the unkindest cut of all, the school will be obliged to keep this metamorphosis secret from that child's father and mother. I've put up with a lot, but up with that, I will not put. And I am ready to unite with all people of goodwill in Scotland, across Britain, because Scotland is still a part of Britain and decided decisively so to be to kill this monster, this creep, monstrous creep of gender bending with Scotland's innocent children. There's a lot coming up. It's the mother of all talk shows. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish, I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. 
I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland, and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Now, thanks for downloading the Moats podcast this week. As a result, listenership is up 151%. More of you downloaded the podcast this week than in the whole month of June. We're now being listened to in 64 countries, including Lebanon, Tanzania, Bahrain, Guinea, Kuwait, Iran, and many more. To download this week's podcast, search Moats the Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from or from following the link on the Moats TV Twitter account. If you do listen, give a five-star review. Why don't you? Afghanistan, what happens next? A, another 9-11, 19% of you think that. A B, another kind of Taliban, 39% of you think that. C, another war, 42% of you think that. Uh, the handling of the decision to withdraw the final American forces that were already down to a minuscule 2,500, the handling of it, the public relations handling of it, have been, well, as I said, ruinous. Just two days ago, the Pentagon spokesman said there was no imminent danger of the Taliban taking over Kabul two days ago. President Biden himself said there was no reason at all to worry about the Taliban taking Kabul and that they had at least 90 days, perhaps as much as a year in which they can hold out. They're an army, he said, of 300,000, the Afghan National Army, and they're as well equipped as any army in the world. In fact, they were not prepared to fight, to defend the rotten, corrupt, kleptocratic puppet regime that the United States had installed in Kabul. They, the Afghan National Army, decided uh, that their bones were worth more uh, than dying to defend such wretches who have crept away like thieves in the night, counting their ill-gotten gains. That's how it looks to me here in London. Let's see how it looks in the United States of America, where one of my most favorite journalists in all the world, Anya Parampil, former colleague of mine indeed on RT America, joins me. Anya, how wonderful to see you again. Thank you for being with us. Uh, have I summarized uh, the situation of the U.S. administration accurately, or, or do you think I've got any of that wrong? I think you have described accurately the way that this looks to many people who see the United States leaving hastily from Afghanistan and within hours, the capital falling to the Taliban. However, I think it's important to note that many observers would probably agree that this would be the scenario 
which played out in Afghanistan, whether or not the United States had left five years ago, five days ago, five months ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, pick a date during the occupation. And this likely would have been the scenario. That's why I'm thinking about how now in 2012, whistleblower Danny Davis, a colonel in the U.S. military, came forward and said the U.S. public was being lied to, that that Congress was actually being lied to, that uh, military elites were lying to elected officials here in Washington, D.C. about the war, about the prospects the United States could win a war that was ill-defined. And I just wanted to read uh, a quote that he actually gave The Guardian in 2012, because I think it just really highlights what we've got now. He says, people are not being told the truth. And what they are actually being told is that soldiers were being met with and killed in a war that was a certain to be a bloody disaster it's like quote i see in slow motion men dying for nothing and i can't stop it it's consuming me from the outside it's eating me alive and that afghan soldiers were going to be incapable of holding on to u.s gains this is 2012 george almost 10 years ago we knew this was the reality and so I think the reason why now the situation has come to pass is that throughout the Trump administration, this was a number one campaign promise of President Donald Trump. And he actually sent envoys to negotiate directly with the Taliban in order to avoid the kind of situation we're having now where it's a violent takeover instead of a negotiated political solution. And we've actually published at the gray zone an account written by Gareth Porter, but provided by a top Trump official, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who describes how, again, the top brass, the military command in Afghanistan, uh, when it came to Afghanistan, undermined these political discussions. And that's where I think that's what's missing from the U.S. exit. We, we should have gotten out a long time ago. I don't think the problem is that Joe Biden is leaving. I think the problem is that the United States refused to talk about any or engage in any sort of political dialogue with the Taliban and reach a political or diplomatic solution. And now in U.S. media, which I can talk more about later, we're being inundated with the kind of manipulation. We had, for example, MSNBC host Andrea Mitchell crying on air when she was speaking with a spokesperson for the State Department, Ned Price, saying that, what about the women? I've been to this country and women are going to be, uh, we're turning our backs on those women. She was tearing up. And, and, and these are all, unfortunately, ways that the U.S. public is manipulated into accepting, for example, the 5,000 more troops that the Biden administration is going to send back to Afghanistan or send to Afghanistan next week. And you would have to be completely illiterate on the situation to believe that the United States actually cares about women in Afghanistan. That is, Biden himself said that was not the reason the U.S. was not in Afghanistan to save women. He said that during well, his uh, campaign. Did, uh, so. did this MSNBC journalist shed any tears for the women in Syria, for example, where exactly the same kind of obscurantist savages uh, have been cutting off their heads with American and other Western support. 
No, of course not. It's it's an imperial way of viewing the Middle East. And I wanted to turn attention also, since you were curious about how the U.S. press is, is covering this, I have the New York Times here as well as the Washington Post. And on the cover of the Washington Post today, there is a story that reads that the U.S. warrior class is experiencing a, a went from hubris to humiliation in Afghanistan. And it actually, there's a quote in the article that I wanted to point out because they say that the Afghan reality wrecks U.S. architects' visions of democracy, as though, of course, that is what we were after in Afghanistan all along. And there's a quote by a civilian who served in the Pentagon during the Obama administration, and he says, we know what happens when we fall to imperial hubris. What does one do with imperial heartbreak? And I just thought that quote was so profound because you have the Post framing this as an issue of empire, of the U.S. overextending itself in Afghanistan the way any empire of the past may have told you could have been the outcome. You're not going to win. You're only going to lose lives and money. But this entire article, interestingly enough, George, is based mostly on quotes from a woman named Michelle Flournoy, who Biden actually considered to be his uh, secretary of defense. She's a defense advisor who served in the Obama administration as deputy defense secretary. And she, in the article, says that all along, since 2009, the U.S. has known about the corruption within the Afghan government, that it was really a, a losing war. And yet, this same woman is the one who was the architect of the Afghan surge in 2009. So I don't understand how officials such as Flournoy are not going to be held accountable or how they cannot be held accountable. It just seems outrageous to me how many lives, how much blood is on their hands, how many lives lost because people such as Michelle Flournoy pushed ahead with this war, lied to the U.S. public, as we know, again, thanks to whistleblowers such as Colonel Danny Davis. And they're only going to do it again, I fear, George, because whether it's Afghanistan or a new battleground, these are always the kinds of manipulations, whether it's women's rights or fighting for democracy that we hear, unless these people are held accountable. I mean, they deserve to be put on trial for the crime of the Afghan war. Uh, has anyone in the media uh, asked the question, where did all the money go? Uh, if you spent uh, between one trillion and two trillion dollars in and on Afghanistan, why did it collapse like a house of cards? What we hear is the C word, corruption, corruption, corruption. I don't think we're ever really, and, and of course, corruption of Afghans. We don't really ever turn and look at ourselves and wonder how it's possible. Why was our military training an army that they'd known for years was going to be incapable of holding on to, to the military gains that it made. And really, I don't see much critical analysis coming from the media. Tucker Carlson at Fox News did ask the same question I'm asking, which is why aren't the people responsible for these policies being held accountable? I think he's an outlier when it comes to U.S. media coverage and critique of U.S. foreign policy. But we are so 
it's so hopeless here. We have figures such as Andrea Mitchell. Then you have uh, Megan McCain, the son of late Senator John McCain, saying that her father would be so outraged if he saw what was going on now. She said he would be he would be ragging in public and to President Biden about this withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, that's, of course, because her father, Senator McCain, was one of the most in all of U.S. history, pro-war senators, someone who traveled to Syria, yeah. someone who worked to wage the war against Libya. And so these are the kind of figures we have. She's a popular on a popular talk show that's not political, Meghan McCain. She works or worked for The View. And so if those are the kind of people who permeate throughout U.S. culture and, and media, I just don't think we're going to get critical analysis. Uh, of course, a lot of profits were made by the military-industrial uh, complex. A lot of uh, the top brass in the military that were sabotaging uh, Trump's attempt to bring the war to an end that you talked about uh, earlier. All that equipment, all those weapons, are now in the hands of the Taliban. What could possibly go wrong? Again, it's not surprising when you just consider that from the very beginning all along, the United States directly created the conditions through which the Taliban came to be through its support for the Mujahideen uh, during the wars in the 70s and the 80s against the Soviet Union. Actually, as my husband, Max Blumenthal, wrote about in his book, The Management of Savagery, the U.S. actually went to Kabul and recruited the most extreme Islamist elements in the uh, Afghan uh, opposition in order to fund them and have them lead the war against the Soviet Union. And, and of course, at that time, he pointed out that women living under the Soviet allied government were saying, what's going to happen to us if these people are going to take over the country? And we know, we've seen how ugly that reality is. So really, no commentator based in the United States has the right to claim they care about women or that they're surprised that these guns are ending up in the Taliban's hands. We helped create the Taliban through the through the war against the Soviet Union and through the instability way in the 1990s, the support for various warlords, which ultimately let bin Laden come into the country. And George, one point that I want to make is that I was very young when, when these wars started, but I remember and still growing up, uh, in an anti-war family, in an anti-war community, there is no question for most people that the war, that, that are already anti-war, critical of U.S. foreign policy, that the war in Iraq was unjust and was a crime and had nothing to do with 9-11. But there was a sense among some people, not all, but some of the more mainstream anti-war or critical elements saying that Afghanistan was actually justified because we weren't attacked on 9-11 and, and bin Laden was there. And so we had the right to go in and retaliate against this attack on our country. And it's just ironic, again, when we think about the fact that bin Laden escaped Afghanistan in tunnels actually built by the United States during the dirty war on uh, the Soviet-backed government. He escaped by our, our tunnels and went to Pakistan, was staying in, uh, according to the official story that they even told us based on his assassination in Abbottabad, a, a place where 
was uh, there was right near a Pakistani military base, right one door. of the countries most closely there. allied with the United States. So yeah. very strange that he would get out that way. And again, just shows you how the United States has been constantly chasing its own tail in Afghanistan. It creates the fire and it comes and tries to put it out, but it only ends up spreading. Anya Parampal, thank you for that wonderful description of how it's all going down in the United States. Much obliged uh, to you. Uh, Gerard says, your argument appears to be we saw 9-11 on TV. Do you believe everything you see on TV? I definitely believe that those airplanes hit the Twin Towers. And uh, this from Thomas in Western Bartonshire. It's obvious that you have not found information that there is an ingredient in the vaccines that cannot be revealed as contract between the governments and vaccine producers prevent anyone from knowing what it is as it's a trade secret. So you have been injected with something, but you do not know what it is. So have millions of others. This is more serious than Afghanistan and requires public debate. I'm sure you will seek confirmation of this as the consequences of it could be serious. Well, I got to thinking, Thomas, that the government of Cuba, China, Vietnam, Russia, even North Korea would be unlikely to be in your capitalist conspiracy. From the makers of Track and Trace comes the Boris Johnson sat-nav. Right, uh, next right. Uh, no, left, uh, I, I mean left. Uh, what? Yes, uh, this, no, this left. Oh, cracky, you've missed it, bugger. Um, oh, bloody Tories. Or, or have you? Ah, uh, uh, turn around. Or in fact, don't turn around. Carry on, yes. <laughs> you have arrived at your destination. Dr. Polona Floriancic is here to speak on Julian Assange. She's one of the founding members of Lawyers for Assange, who have now been fighting uh, for his liberty for more than a decade. It's almost impossible to believe. Dr. Polona, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. Let me summarize. We, we cover this story a lot on this show, but for those perhaps listening, uh, for the first time in a while. Uh, Julian won his case in January. The judge decided not to extradite him. Inexplicably, uh, she A, allowed the US government to appeal it, but worse, B, uh, demanded that he be kept in the maximum security hellhole designed for mass murderers and terrorists at Belmarsh Prison, where he's kept uh, as Peter Hitchens, the celebrated English journalist, put it today in the Daily Mail, as if he were a mobster, as if he were a mafia chieftain, uh, all with great toll on his mental health, which, of course, was sufficiently fragile for even the somewhat partial uh, judge, uh, Barrester, to decide not to extradite him in the first place. Uh, what's the legal situation now? Um, well, thank you very much for having me, number one. Uh, I just want to make clear that Lawyers for Assange is not associated with Assange's legal team. Uh, yeah. We are a 
of independent observers, just for the audience not to be confused. Yeah. Uh, what is the situation now? As you've mentioned, the uh, Professor Koppelman, the neuropsychiatrist uh, who gave the expert opinion of, on Assange's mental health and on his um, suicide risk, is now being challenged. And this is what happened this week um, at the High Court or the uh, Royal Courts of Justice. Another ground for appeal was approved, and this is that his statement misled the judge. Now, this is very uh, problematic to claim because before the first hearing, the judge already knew all the facts. And the facts here, which are supposedly problematic, is that in his first uh, report, Professor Koppelman did not mention that Stella Morris and Max and Gabriel were the family of Julian, or that she was his partner and they were his children. But before Judge Beretzer even had uh, heard evidence at the first hearing, she already had this information. And in the second report from the professor, he already spoke about this. He did not hide this fact. And the reason he hid this fact, so to speak, was because of the concerns for the well-being of Stella and the children. So he was just protecting their privacy by not mentioning their relationship with Julian Assange. Now, the judge, uh, Baretzer, who, as you've mentioned, hasn't really been the most, um, what's the word? She has shown her dislike of, of Julian on many occasions. And in her decision, apart from, you know, saying no to the extradition on, on the ground that he may commit suicide if extradited. Apart from that, she has accepted all the arguments from the United States. So in, in every other sense, that judgment is highly problematic, or sorry, decision. Um, now, my point is, Professor uh, Koppelman was just trying to um, protect Stella and the kids from what they are experiencing now, which is death threats and, and threats to their security. And I'm sure you've seen Stella speak outside the court and she could hardly contain her tears, which I'm sure she feels extreme injustice that this is now being used to challenge the expert opinion that has led to the um, refusal of the extradition, that her safety and the safety of her children and also Daniel, the, the the other son of, of Julian Assange, who's also receiving threats, that that considering the protection of them is now being used as to somehow undermine the expert opinion of Professor Koppelman altogether. And, and where's the connection? Nobody knows why the expert opinion would not be, uh, would not hold uh, its value, it, its, its merit, because this was not mentioned in it. And the, the United States or the, the prosecution is claiming that this has misled uh, Judge Baretzer, but she herself said she was not misled. She understood why uh, the, the information was not disclosed at that point. And she since heard the full story. So, so her decision was in no way influenced by that. Uh, now, Timothy Holroyd, who's the um, Chief Justice um, at the Royal Courts of Justice, who decided on this this week, he himself said that it's highly uh, unusual for the uh, Royal Courts of Justice to consider the evaluation of the evidence by the uh, district judge 
but that he is um, allowing this, uh, you know, to be argued at the appeal. Um, the appeal is in uh, October. Uh, I think uh, in summary we can say that because a new ground for appeal has been added, uh, yes. the danger of Julian being extradited to the US uh, just got greater. Uh, if it had been the simple appealing against Barista's finding in October, uh, Julian would have been safer than he now is. Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. At the beginning, three of the grounds for appeal were granted. Now, now it's all of them. So with every you know, further grounds for appeal, the threat is greater. But the hope is that the other judges will be more reasonable and, and will still uphold the findings of the expert witness and still consider the risk of suicides to be great. And I know you don't speak for Julian's lawyers. That's an important dichotomy to make. Uh, but in your opinion, as a lawyer, why is he still being held in these cruel and unusual circumstances. He has not been convicted of any offense beyond skipping bail that he's already served one year in prison for. Therefore, he's an untried prisoner, uh, not charged with any criminal offense here in Britain. Why is the British state disgracing itself with this uh, treatment of a very high profile political prisoner? It's not just the state which is disgracing itself, it's the justice system, because this is not a normal proceeding. That's, that's as, as a jurist, I, I can say that this is not normal. And this shows that it's actually a political proceeding. And all I can say about him still being in Belmarsh, it's grotesque. The bail skipping part was actually him uh, seeking and being granted asylum. This is not the same as quote-unquote, normal bail skipping. And even if it was normal bail skipping, in most cases in the United Kingdom, they don't even get any punishment. Or if they do, it's something minimal. He got the longest punishment. And if even after that was over, he's still in Belmarsh. And why Belmarsh? Is he a war criminal? Is he, you know, has he committed crimes against humanity? Or has he revealed them? So... As a lawyer, I can tell you this is political. Well, uh, the, the criminals made it a crime uh, to report uh, on their criminal behavior. That's the long and uh, short of it. I'm grateful to you for your uh, coming on the show tonight. Dr. Polana Florianchic, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Mother of All talk shows. Now, the poll is... Uh, uh, going, uh, if you'll forgive the pun, great guns. Uh, what happens next in Afghanistan? Another 9-11, 19%. Another kind of Taliban, 40%. Another war, 41%. On the YouTube poll, uh, that was the Twitter poll. On the YouTube poll, it's almost identical. Another 9-11, 13%. Another kind of Taliban, 48%. Another war, 30%. 9%. Peter says the Afghan people have lost, George. I thought you were better than this, to be honest. Give me a call, Peter. Tell me what you mean. 
And Oliver says, for some reason, George was on the jihadist side when it came to Yugoslavia. And that's the reason I will never trust him. I fought against the war on Yugoslavia with all my breath and all my heart. Me and Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn and others were practically the only people in this country opposing the war on Yugoslavia, the destruction of Yugoslavia. How dare you, you imbecile? If you have any guts, you'll pick up the phone right now and call this show and justify that utter slander. Really. And uh, Yoda says, love the show. Best entertainment and education on the airwaves. <laughs> now, my next guest was a parliamentary colleague of mine for some years, a parliamentarian of some note, actually. A man always guaranteed to raise uh, the awkward, difficult question and not to take necessarily no or yes for an answer. Nowadays, he's the director of communications at Motorcycle Action Group. He is, of course, the former MP, Limbit Opic. Limbit, welcome uh, to the show. Wonderful to see you again. That's not a very environmentally friendly job, is it? Are motorcycles not polluters? Well, actually, uh, if we shifted from four wheels to two, you would cut emissions because, by definition, uh, an, uh, a motorcycle is a tiny fraction of the weight and size of a car. So you should start using a scooter. And you can go electric if you want to as well. So uh, actually, on the list of, uh, of offenders, that's one of the very few uh, that I would actually say, you're not doing too badly if you shift from four wheels to two. Good answer. I'm sure you've done that before. Uh, the, uh, the big conference coming up this year in Glasgow, of all places, which is somewhat polluted city these days. Uh, um, rats are running wild. The nationalist controlled local authority can't even empty the bins. It's going to be a potential embarrassment for those of us who love the city, but the whole world's coming there and there's a frenzy building. Uh, how do you view it all? Hypocrisy, that's how I view it. Uh, we're told not to travel, we're told not to fly, but while everybody else can do virtual meetings, like you and I are doing now, apparently these people, the environmentalists uh, all over the world, they can fly to get together in Glasgow. Uh, and someone needs to explain why this do as I say, not as I do, is in any way acceptable. Uh, in terms of the debate itself, and perhaps this is where we really get into the controversy, I'm not even convinced that what they're talking about is on the money scientifically. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, uh, there's a few people like that. I'm one of them and you're another. But tell us what you mean by that. Uh, what I mean is that it seems to me that the virtue signaling which goes with this, this remorseless climate emergency terminology uh, where we're being told that we've got 100 days or five years to save the world, I just actually think it's, it's gone crazy now. And it's totally diverted away from science. Give you one example. You'd think the polar bears are going extinct. There are actually more polar bears now than there have been since the 1960s. Uh, Antarctic is melting away. Actually, it looks like Antarctic is showing no real signs of climate change at all. That's an arguable point, uh, but it's certainly not the case uh, that everything is indicating uh, that we're heading into a terrible phase of global warming. And here's the fundamental thing, George. I'm not even persuaded that the climate that is changing is being caused by human beings in any significant way. Uh, what else could it be? Just cyclical? It is cyclical. There's no, one of the things that really annoys me when uh, I debate this with, with people from the Green Movement is they say, we're going to stop climate change. Well, good luck with that, because the climate has changed for the last two and a half thousand million years. That's roughly length of time the atmosphere has got the proportions it's got in it now. We've had ice ages, we've had warm periods. And so when they say, uh, oh, well, you're a climate change denier. No, it's the other way around. I'm insistent that the climate will always change. And we're not going to be able to stop that. Uh, what I'm really bothered about, though, is that they give the impression that the human race is so powerful that they can actually stop these cyclical movements. There's something called the Milankovitch cycles. Uh, the Greens probably think that's a kind of a bicycle. Actually, it's the way the Earth goes around the sun, how it wobbles uh, and, and how it rotates. Milankovitch cycles seem to be really important, in my view, to the way that the Earth gets heated and cooled. When it gets further away from the sun, there's less heat. Now, nobody in these demonstrations has even heard of that. Until we can have a proper scientific debate where people can disagree with what I say, but until we have a proper debate, we're not actually going to get close to the science. And instead, what happens is people like me get shouted down as climate change deniers with all the sinister undertones that phrase has. There's a lot of uh, uh, political cross-dressing uh, on this issue. Uh, many of the people that are most up in arms about being forced to wear a mask and so on mm. uh, are amongst those uh, who are effectively calling for a real proper tyranny. Uh, the tyranny of the environmental lobby, which will change our lives if they can in ways which are far more disruptive, unpleasant and profound uh, than the mere wearing of a mask in Tesco. Howard Cox from Fairfield UK has just uh, launched a report which estimates the cost of going carbon neutral just for the UK is £1.4 trillion. That's just a ludicrous amount of money, especially if you do begin to realise that the climate will always change. Secondly, as you say, there is this tyranny where I am bound to get criticism for talking on your show and daring to question the orthodoxy, which is the new religion which is the environmental emergency. We're all going to die. It's our fault. But if you repent, you will be saved. And 
that's the problem we've got. So I, I'm beginning to speak up, saying, okay, come and have the debate. Challenge the figures that I've got. Tell me about why the polar bear population has increased. Then tell me why you think what you do about the Antarctic. If we can actually begin to have that a serious debate, then we're making progress. But you get shouted down as a climate change denier, as I said before. And that isn't science. The scientific method has been thrown out the window and replaced by that virtue signaling I told you about before. And what's going on with the Conservative Party? They didn't get elected as the Greens. And for some reason, Boris Johnson is on this front. I like the guy personally, but I, I just don't understand why he thinks he's onto a winner when he's telling us how to live our lives, but inviting thousands of people to fly to Glasgow when they could all do it on Zoom like you and me this evening. It's the apocalyptic uh, approach which disturbs me that we've lived through, you and I have lived through, you've got five days left to save the NHS. You've got seven days left to save the pound. Uh, you've, you, you may even be too late to save the planet, but we need to try anyway. I mean, this uh, apocalyptic approach, uh, the Greta Thunberg approach, weeping, bitter tears, uh, blaming her parents' generation, her grandparents' generation, and so on. Just like the COVID uh, thing, it's, it's going to prove very deeply divisive and in the same vein, lacking in scientific precision. More, 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 more heat than light. That's exactly the problem, George. Take, for example, CO2. Not many people realize that there's plenty of evidence, it's not conclusive, but plenty of evidence to suggest that CO2 is a lag factor. What that means is it could be that the evidence suggests uh, as temperatures go up, then CO2 goes up. As temperatures come down, then CO2 comes down. It's not really clear what the relationship is there. But we're being told that something which is essentially a trace gas and a good fertilizer, because we depend on it for plant life, CO2, is wrecking the planet. Well, water vapor is 490 times more important as a greenhouse gas uh, than, than CO2. But we fixate on CO2 because they can ban petrol motorcycles. They can ban your car and your diesel and everything else, ban your, your gas stove for that matter, because it's been made the enemy. Actually, there's an argument to say that we should have more CO2 because it greens the planet. NASA, which is some extent complicit, I think, in the abuse of science on this one. But NASA itself admits that the world's got greener, and it's probably because there's a bit more CO2. And what do we do in greenhouses? Professional greenhouse uh, operators, they triple the amount of CO2 that's in those greenhouses because the plants love it. Any gardener knows this. But you can't get to the science exactly because of that tyranny, because you're shouted down, you're excluded, or you're told, Oh, we don't need to have balance on this because the science is settled. As soon as someone says that, they've mm. abandoned science. Yes. Uh, and uh, well, the Afghan uh, story that we're covering tonight is another good example. When the House of Commons was unanimous about something, it was almost always unanimously wrong. None of us, I presume, are saying that we should not try and lead a cleaner, greener life. Uh, that we should have less plastic, less waste, keep the plastic out of the oceans, uh, maintain our wildlife and our uh, insect diversity and so on. We're all in favor of that. We just don't want to wear a hair shirt and go and live in a cave as the epitome or the apex of human civilization, do we? Exactly. 
Uh, I've got solar panels on my roof. It's a decision I sorely regret, by the way, because it's so uneconomic, it's unbelievable. And uh, I greened my house up in Wales. Not that anyone cared. They still voted me out. But I'm not bitter about that. I reduced the, the, the consumption to 300 watts in that house. I did that because it's just smart. Uh, if you can get a car which does 80 miles per gallon instead of 50, what's well, not to like? But so, so sensible husbandry of our resources is a really good idea. And also, uh, I, I, I don't like the idea of pointlessly wasting uh, those resources. Where I really object is that panic, the climate emergency. But here's the danger, a bit like the wildfires in Greece, this is going to burn itself out because when the world doesn't collapse, when we do get a heavy snow one winter, when uh, the temperatures go down, all of this, people will just decide, hang on, we've been sold a pup here. But at what cost, George? The danger is we'll have banned uh, petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030, which I don't think is scientifically sustainable. Uh, and even more that, we're going to have outages in, in the grid because where's all the power coming from? Same people who want us to drive electric, despite the millions of tons of electric battery waste that's going to create, don't like nuclear power. And you're not going to be able to do this with solar and wind. And they were against the seven barrage at Everton South at University in Bristol. So they created a, a hopeless situation where eventually something's got to give. And I suspect it'll be the environmental uh, uh, agenda. And watch this now. China really uh, coming up with eco economic success and so on. They're more than happy to sell us all these electric vehicles and everything else without doing it themselves. Why? Because they're going to be far more economically viable than, for example, Britain. So we're going to become the poor relation precisely because of what I think is a scientifically extremely shaky agenda. And it's, as I said before, about virtue signaling, about looking about who can be the greenest, regardless of whether that's what's best for the, for the world. Well, they're all vying, but as you say, the most surprising one is, is the Conservative Party. Uh, it's worth, I think, uh, finishing on this point, that there's actually nothing all that conservative about the British Conservative Party, right back to David Cameron's hugging uh, huskies and all the rest. They've been adapting and adopting every fad, the, uh, the, every liberal fad, small l, Lembit, Every smaller yeah. <laughs> liberal, liberal fad that comes along. Why? Uh, I'd, I'm going to invite Boris live on your show. Here's an exclusive for you, George. Let's just have a chat. I'll, I'll lay the science as I see it. And, and he can ask any question he wants. And if I don't know something, I know quite a lot about it. I study this professionally. If I don't know something, I'll tell him. But I'll also tell him where they're wrong. Why some people suspect uh, because there are influential people in his close family. Others say that he just wants to green the blues. Uh, or thirdly, it might simply be because he can't resist this bandwagon. And you've got COP26 coming out when he can look like world leader. As I say, Boris, I like you. Uh, I want you to do well, but you're not doing well. For the millions of people who voted conservative in this country, they didn't vote green. So please give me the chance to share the science. And I'll show you why I'm skeptical about the fact that there's a climate emergency. There isn't. There are cycles in climate change. They've always been there. We make some small difference. But at the end of the day, CO2 feeds the world. It doesn't destroy it. Well, we'll pass on that invitation right after the show. <laughs> Lembe Opic uh, of the British Motorcycle, sorry, the Motorcycle Good. Action, Action Group. Group. Yeah. Otherwise known That's as right. MAG or Maggie. Uh, I never thought I'd hear <laughs> that acronym applied to you. Lemba Opic, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Mother of All talk shows.
If you are in the United Kingdom, it's 0808196-5522. If you're in the United States, it's plus one, 844-944-3344. Let me hear from you. I was just listening to your previous callers about the manufacturing of consent. Yeah. People are powerless. They're drowning in a cocktail of confusion and they just don't know what to do and they know no one's speaking up for them. It's bristling out there amongst the white English working class. They feel that Labour hates them and they hate Labour back. I, I think the, the idea of this capitalism thing that we, we have limited respect for which is linked with freedom compared to like a, a strict socialist um, people going on to welfare and, and not being able to work and I, I feel like that almost the, the world this great reset and build back better and all these key words that team come out with team um, country leaders all over the world it seems to me to be a little bit worrying now, uh, you shouldn't be any more worried than you were before but you shouldn't be any less worried than you were before, either. If you're a lawyer, which unfortunately, what's his name? Keir Starmer is. Um, he's spending all of his time being right about everything. You know, he can't appeal to every community. It's not good enough. It really isn't good enough. You know, there were, there were four other candidates and they were all better than him. Why has the Labour Party failed so miserably? I mean... Well, the Labour Party has fallen out of love uh, with the British people, and the British people have reciprocated. Yeah, but don't, don't you think Labour had some part to play in that, though, with the whole yeah. classism thing? I mean, like, you're supposed to be old Labour, like, you went against new Labour, in better commas. Uh -huh. Don't you think it's on people like you to promote actual... Well, Labour I do. Policies or no, whatever. why should I prove? What do I owe the Labour Party, Dan? Labour Party or whatever. I think the Labour Party is a cata catastrophic disaster. It so has... do something about it, then. Why, why are you complaining about it? Why don't you do something about it right? instead of complaining? It's... But Dan obviously doesn't know that I'm actually the leader of a rival political party and stand against the Labour Party in the, in the elections. And George, do you know something else? You're not going to sing again, I, are you? For the last time you spoke to me... You ain't nothing but a hound dog Crying all the time Well, you ain't You're never caught a rabbit You ain't, ain't no, no friend of mine You've actually got a great voice. First up is Tarek in London. Go ahead, Tarek. Hello, um, um, hello, Jeff. Um, I just want to make a comment about the fact that whether Taliban have um, have changed or they are the same Taliban that they were in 1996. Yeah. I unfortunately was present in 1996 takeover of the Kabul, and I was witness to the way Dr. Najibullah was uh, brought out and hanged in Ariana Chok. Uh, in fact, Dr. Najibullah was killed and brought out dead to be hanged. His brother Ahmed Shahpur was actually hanged. Um, in Ariana Chok. Um, and I contrast that with uh, today's takeover of Kabul. Although I get to sit in the comfort of London now, but it is um, a, a much different uh, example of a takeover compared to 1996. So far, so far, Tarek, so far. So far, but we saw the capture of uh, um, Ismail Khan, um, an ardent um, enemy of the Taliban. He was captured in Herat, but then released 
uh, and it's put back on the plane and sent to Kabul to convey Taliban's message to the opposition. So um, there has been some very positive developments, and we have to applaud Taliban, and we have to encourage them to continue on those positive developments rather than to um, bring out the, the demons from the past and, and try to push them to, to, to kind of go in that direction. But what we are seeing right now is something that is a very positive sign. And a lot of uh, talk has been made on, on human rights and whether for girls will be allowed to go to school or not. The problem was not that Taliban were not allowing girls to go to school. The problem was the way the schools were presented to the Afghan population. Schools were being used by the communist um, government to uh, brainwash the kids, and they were literally dressing, up, uh, dressing the girls up in dresses that they were putting in contrast with local culture. And that was a real problem. If schools could be presented in a positive way, Taliban have got absolutely no problem with allowing girls to go to school. And this is something that they have been saying. And, and recently we have seen that the at least the Taliban policy is that we will not uh, stop girls from going to school. What happens under individual commanders in some way is entirely different thing. But now Taliban well, yeah, are coming uh, back. But don't people. just gloss over it because it's an entirely different thing. Afghanistan is a big territory. Uh, it is uh, habitually lawless, subject to warlordism. Uh, the girls have already been taken out of their workplace and driven off and told not to come back in uh, several of the so-called liberated areas. I find your caricature uh, of the school and universities in the pre-Taliban era quite grotesque, I must tell you, uh, that girls were being dressed up. Didn't girls have the agency of dressing as they wished? Uh, in uh, defiance of local custom, as defined by who? By you or other men? Dr. Najibullah was a friend of mine. So I recall, recall his fate uh, in nightmarish terms. Uh, I have absolutely no reason to resile from my description of these people as medieval obscurantist savages. Uh, but I did say at the top of the show, perhaps you missed it, uh, that the way forward now that they are back in control is to engage with them, not to uh, sanction them, ostracize them, quarantine them, besiege them, subvert them. We must now accept uh, that the Taliban are back in power and try to do our best to mitigate that obscurantist savagery, and above all, to stop the Taliban going down the road they did go down, of allowing every Tom, Dick, and Harry of the Al-Qaeda persuasion to use their territory as a base for international terrorism. Surely you can go with me on that. Well, to be very honest, as far as the Al-Qaeda is concerned, Taliban never wanted them to be there. The Al-Qaeda was left over to the Taliban uh, by the by the Hikmatyar and the rest. They invited Mullah Omar, them was, Mullah Omar had the warmest possible relations with Osama bin Laden. Why, why are you apologizing uh, uh, for the Taliban in this? 
Because I have seen, I have seen the positive things of that. That was the only four years in Afghanistan that had any semblance of peace. When you say that Afghanistan is a fractured country and it has never been under single control during the Taliban time, it was under the single control. Although it was an extremely brutal control, but that was the only time in that. Well, I'm All glad you concede they're extremely uh, brutal. Uh, you, you don't work for Pakistan intelligence at Tariq, do you? Uh, no, not really. In fact, I was imprisoned by the Taliban. I was kept in prison for around uh, 21 days uh, in Taliban prison. I've been slapped, kicked, and uh, and and um, literally, more or less, one could say, uh, tortured uh, during the Taliban time. I've got no excuses to make. I was rather close to Hikmatyar um, when I was a journalist. And I used to go down to Afghanistan more often. But uh, bringing it down to Bin Laden's uh, thing, uh, Mullah Omar was fed up of Bin Laden. He hated the fact that uh, Bin Laden was running his own show in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. It was only when Mr. Clinton uh, was involved with Monica Lewinsky, and in order to divert the internal politics, he launched a cruise missile attack on Afghanistan in Khos. That's what really um, infuriated the, 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 the Malomar, and he said, okay, fine, now, I, now he is my honorable guest, and I will defend him. But whatever the case was, in those days, Taliban had just come out of a village and had ended up having the whole country. They were not experienced. Now we would hope. You said the Taliban are back in power. I'll say they're not yet back in power. They haven't formed the government. They are still the insurgents who have won the war, but they haven't formed the government yet. But we would hope that they will be different. And I'm seeing signs that they do seem like as if they are much different than what they were in 1996. Okay, a pleasure disagreeing with you. Thanks for the call, Tariq. Uh, now, this is, I think, the email of the night. It's from someone who calls himself Malachite. Dear George, you will probably disagree with me on this because you are a woken lefty. Long time since I've been called that. I genuinely believe that we need to send more troops to Afghanistan to end our humiliation and defeat there and install a leader with guile integrity, tenacity, and resolve who will kill the terrorists. I think we need to install Tony Blair as the leader of Afghanistan so that Britain and the US can get its way no matter what. How wonderful is that? Kieran is in Sunderland uh, on the gender issue. Kieran, go ahead. Hello there, George. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for calling. What would you like to say? Would you agree that it is the 16 to 24 age group that perpetuates this id poll kind of thing? 16 to what? 16 to 24, because... Yeah, I, yeah, have, I think it's driven, because, because, it's driven by very young people, yeah. Yeah, because, because I have lived, loved and laughed with people who are transgender, gay, pansexual, asexual. I have lived with these people. And, uh, what is pansexual, Kieran? You'll do it with anything with a pulse. Um, let's not get offensive. Um, pan, pansexual, pansexual basically means you, you don't care if you love somebody that's gay, that's straight, that's, trans, that's transgender. But you've got, you to, know, love, but you've got to love them. Um, we're not going to get to the, the 52 different genders kind of thing. Like that, that doesn't exist. It, that only exists in the, the 16 to 24 age range when, when people are, are, are finding their, their political 
um, their political life, their sexual life, their, their personal life, their getting jobs. And, that, and, and it's, those kind, it's that age range that, um, that is on social media. Yeah. And then when you, get, when you get to a certain age and, you, and nobody, you, you come off social, social media, you, you understand what your identity is, but it's only, it's only the youngsters that seem to think, yeah. oh, um, yeah. But, um, I, well, I'm, I will, look, I'm sympathetic, Kieran, to that uh, point of view. But, 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 and but, but, and but, I'm, I'm fully seized of the fact uh, that there is, there is sexual fluidity uh, openly uh, expressed it's, now it's, in a way, in a way, in a way that I, there wasn't when I was young, and I have no animus towards even people that like sex with pans. Uh, I, I just won't allow uh, my four-year-old or my uh, seven-year-old or my ten-year-old uh, to be filled with this at school. That is a straw man. You show, you show me a single teacher that can teach a four-year-old child about sex. If you can show me that, I will bring the police before you. Well, uh, uh, you may not be Pro aware. Prove me. Prove me. Kieran, Kieran, Kieran. You may not be aware. Kieran, let me speak. You may not be aware of the story I'm that broke I'm this week. Kieran, please be quiet for a minute of the story that broke this week in Scotland of new guidelines issued by the Scottish government applying to children from the age of four upwards who may now, if they tell their teacher they are uncomfortable with the gender uh, in which they are currently living, be allowed to begin the pathways to changing it, including changing their name, their personal pronouns, the toilet they use, the dressing room they use, etc. This is official in Scotland, where I live right now. It is the guidelines to teachers in every Scottish school. Over to you, Kira. Can I ask you one thing, George? Yeah. At what age would you allow your child to express themselves freely? 16. So, so, so you would impose upon a child with their, with their own, um, with their own uh, consciousness, you would, you would impose, like, um, like, almost like religiously, you, you would call... Well, don't somebody. say almost like religiously. I am religious, but that's not the reason why I would so impose it. I'd impose well, that, it, I'd that, impose that, it, that, Kieran, that, I'd impose that, it, that, I'd that, impose that, it for this reason. My child is too young to decide to smoke, too young to decide to drink, too young to drive a car, too young to vote, too young to do any number of things. And therefore, ipso facto is too young to decide that though born and brought up as a girl, they now wish to be a boy. Crucify me. Go on. False equivalency, my friends. False Why? equivalency. Why? Uh, um, well, I think smoking uh, is a lot less damaging than deciding to change your uh, sex, your gender, uh, nobody, as, as a no, child. Nobody, nobody, it's, it's, it's about expression. 
nobody's, nobody's asking your child to express to smoke a cigarette. How weird, man. Kieran, apart from <laughs> your, apart from swearing on the air, uh, is this big ground Sunderland way? Are you a spokesman uh, for the Mackams on this, do you think? Kieran, the gutless coward, has run away. Let's go to South Carolina and talk with Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, George, good to talk to you again. And I, you. I, first, of all, first of all, I want to wish you a, uh, an early happy birthday. How kind of you. And, Thanks uh, so much. Yeah, and your birthday is just two days before mine. Oh, well, so, and uh, I wish you an early happy and, birthday, too. Yeah. And I am two years your senior, so there. <laughs> now that we got that out of the way. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the the. Th this is twice in three weeks that you've had two conservative uh, climate He's deniers. He's not a conservative. He's a liberal Democrat. He's a no, lefty. He's a lefty. As, as far as. As far as as far as climate change goes, he's a climate denier, just like Matthew was two weeks ago. And I'm beginning to think that you may be leaning towards some climate deniability no, of, of your own. What I'm leaning towards, Mike, is free speech, which is why you're on okay. now. Well, you're on now I, to give an alternative point of view. And, and that's what we're going to do. And, and, and I would I would invite you to have someone else on besides climate deniers to tell you what's happening with climate change. We because have, it's, it's we have obvious. had many times, mate. Many it's, times it's, you it's only not, hear what you want to hear. We have no, had many not, times. I, I listen to you, I listen well, to you every week, YouTube. George. I never you're miss your show. On, you're all on YouTube, Mike. You can go back. We've even had, uh, what's, what do you call them? Climate, uh, the climate uh, people, the main, the... the Extinction Rebellion. We even had Extinction oh. Rebellion on the show. Well, I, and I'm not saying, you know, that you haven't, okay? All I'm saying is allowing these people to come on and talk about this and, and sway these other people that are, that are, you know, here's the bottom line. Yeah. The why don't, why don't you deconstruct what he said rather than well, calling but, for censorship? It doesn't become I'm not, you. I'm not, doesn't become I'm not you, calling Mike. for censorship, but, but, but you're... you're uh, guest today, okay? Yeah. He was talking about uh, how the science is not proven, but the science is all totally proven. It's, I mean, it's out there for anybody that wants to look at it. It's right there. You look at the IPCC, their newest report. Uh, it, we're in dire, dire situation. I mean, we need to do something about it. We need to do it now. And if there's no political will to do it, we are dooming humanity to extinction. If you look at the facts, we are already in the sixth mass extinction of this planet. And it's all being brought on by uh, uh, human activity. And Don't you think that's this a is, trifle is, apocalyptic, Mike? No, we're, lo we're, losing, we're losing hundreds of species every day. Just look it up. Look up the sixth mass extinction. Go to um, Nature Bats Last. Look at these things and find out where we really are. Because this guy was talking about how, how the pollution from cars and stuff wasn't bad. Listen, just not just carbon dioxide, but carbon monoxide kills so many people in this world every year. Mm. I mean, I mean, it's happening. All of these cases. You remember back when they took lead out of gasoline? You remember that? Yeah. Do you know how many kids and stuff we damaged irreparably from lead poisoning? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm against coal, lead petrol. Coal. I'm I'm quite okay. I'm quite I, content with uh, electric yeah, but the uh, cars. I've driven is, I've driven them. Let me tell you something. The carbon monoxide. Let me tell you something, Mike. Not only is Lembit Opic not a conservative, 
he would be thought in Britain to be something of a loony lefty. He's a liberal MP, or was a he's liberal. He's probably neoliberal. Uh, no, he's proper. Yeah. He's proper hanging out there, liberal. He's the most liberal guy you could possibly imagine. If this wasn't, well, a, family, if this wasn't a family show, I'd tell you all the ways in which he is as liberal uh, as can be. What, but, and, but and, and I'm going to tell you something else, Mike. Until he started speaking, I did not have the faintest idea that he would take the line that he did. I assumed, because he is something of a loony lefty, he'd be taking exactly the same view as you. I mentioned this because I hate it when people impute false motive to me or the show. I had no idea he took the line on climate change that he does. I imagined it would be the absolute opposite. Phil is in Bristol. Let's hear from Phil. Yes, hello, and thanks so much for bringing up the South Socialist Revolution in Afghanistan in 1978 um, that brought in women's rights and women could wear what they wanted. There's all kinds of photographs online of showing women wearing, you know, normal clothes, and we've forgotten that, and the CIA came in and... You, when you say normal clothes, Phil, you mean Western clothes? Oh, sorry. I, I apologize. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so the point I want to make is this um, mythology that, that uh, suddenly, out of the blue, the Taliban has swept the, over the country, and wow, we're so surprised. The media's taken this up. And the fact is that if, if, the, if the Taliban had not been powerful and had not taken over territory, they would have never negotiated with the Taliban in the first place. And so it shows that the strength of the Taliban was way, was like years ago, where they were having negotiations, having to sit down with the Taliban. Where was the Afghan army when, when the Taliban took over territory years ago and kept on taking over more and more territory incrementally over the years until we're, we're at the place now? And they're acting all surprised in the media. I don't understand. Well, I think that's a brilliant call, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, we were lied to. Uh, about any number of things. We were lied to that all the blood that we spent, all the treasure we expended, uh, was being used to build a modern Afghan state with a modern and powerful army. We were not. Uh, we were bloating the profits of the military-industrial complex and literally filling the cash bags of the corrupt uh, tyrants that we installed in power in Afghanistan. We were told uh, that there was an Afghan government. But as I've said for 20 years now, the Afghan government's writ does not run outside of the congestion charge area of the green zone in Kabul. And the minute that foreign soldiers leave will be the minute uh, that the uh, resistance to them, in this case, largely, though not exclusively, calling themselves the Taliban, which means the students, Talib means student in, in uh, Arabic, uh, they will take power as soon as the Western forces leave. We were lied to systematically by our media, by our politicians, that A, the invasion of Afghanistan 
was the right thing to do. The occupation of it for 20 years was moreover the right thing to do. And lastly, that when we ended it, there would be an Afghan state left extant as soon as we departed. All of these were bright, shining lies. Phil, thanks for a wonderful call. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Lift off. Lift off. 30 minutes after the hour. We need to uh, acclimatize the public uh, for the introduction of extraterrestrials because come to the conclusion at this point if they're going to come they are going to come soon back in the late 60s and early 70s they actually saw the softer land in front of them or pass by in new york or go overhead it went in front of my eyes up and turned into a, what looked like a star way up in the sky they said the same line that you just made and it was amazing it is an awful waste of space if, if we are all if that there is. If we are all that there is, exactly. Have you ever seen any of these phenomena? I have seen um, energy entities. One looked like a massive jellyfish. The other one looked like a massive centipede. Well, you had me up to that point. Now I just think you're stark raving mad. Should four-year-olds be allowed to change their gender without parental consent? Yes, 3%. Who are the 3% who said yes to that question? No, 97%. On YouTube, 6% said yes. What's wrong with you people? 6% said yes. 94% said no. Why don't you call me and defend your affirmative answer uh, on that question? Now, just quickly, um, we did cover uh, the the case uh, brought by Britney Spears to remove her father uh, from her guardianship, and in this case, guardianship of her millions of dollars. And that case has now been resolved. So uh, just quickly, we have Sarah Robertson, our very own showbiz and TV editor. Sarah, thanks uh, for coming on uh, the show to talk about this. Most kind of you on a crowded uh, evening. Just summarise what happened on the case, would you? Well, lawyers, Britney's lawyers um, said this was a major victory for her, that her father, Jamie Spears, has agreed to step aside from the conservatorship. So they've said Britney obviously launched this um, appeal to stop her father controlling her estate back in July, which has been played out in the courts over the last um, six weeks or so. And this is this is a victory for her, which they called a major victory that Jamie Spears has agreed to step back um, as a conservator of her estate and no longer participate in that. What he has said is that he will allow, make room for an orderly transition for a new legal team to come in place instead of him. Yeah, that's the key point, isn't it? Uh, mm. the, he's not saying that she is uh, fit uh, to be in charge of her own finances and her own life, actually. He's saying someone else rather than him 
Is she going to contest that, Sarah? At the moment, it's not known if Britney is going to contest it. I think for her, um, her anger at this whole situation has been directed at, at her father, who she feels has been the driving force behind this. You know, she, she claimed he made her perform on stage, you know, when she was supposedly not well. He, she's obviously made lots and lots of claims that he was controlling her, her medical care, her health, how, how she lived her life. He has contested all of this and, and things have got without using the pun on on her single toxic between them um which britney obviously sang that song and that you went know, right over my head sarah sorry well any britney fans will know toxic's one of her big hits but you know this whole family feud has has become very toxic and even though he stepped away it has not been without a parting shot i i was sent the 15 page court document over over the weekend which was what jamie had filed or his lawyers had filed at the court in Louisiana. And there was some very, very dark stuff in there. He alludes to, to Britney's mental health, um, her, her physical health, but says he will not speak publicly on that matter. So he's still trying to play the part of the, the protective father. Um, he also chastises Britney's mother, Lynn, um, who's had a lot to say within this. She sort of come out on her daughter's side and said, yes, Jamie, you know, has has been controlling things. But he took a parting shot at Lynn as well, saying that actually she's been estranged from her daughter. This is what he's claiming for 13 years. And he has been paying Lynn's bills to the cost of $150,000 a year, which includes her mansion, um, servants, staff, all the rest of it, whatever, whatever Lynn needs over the last 13 years. And, and what just seems to be really sad about this is yet again, it's coming down to money with Britney's family all having their hands in the Britney pot of her $60 million fortune and, and who's getting what out of it. But it'll be interesting to see what happens now. At the moment, Britney just seems to be celebrating the fact that her father has, has agreed to relinquish this control. I mean, she's she's making videos on Instagram for her fans where she dances, and there's been a couple where she's stripped off. Um, you know, so she's she's just as trying to do. express herself. As, as, as you do. As you do. However, I just wanted to say another thing that I, I have been party to is Britney now is controlling her own narrative. Her her spokespeople and press people are, are no longer speaking for her. So whatever comes out. Britney's releasing herself to fans through her social media. She's not giving her, her team any direction in terms of what to say on her behalf. So, so this is another sort of signal and step that Britney's trying to take control back of, of her life as she sees it. Sounds like an accident waiting to happen to me. Sarah Robertson, thanks for that quick update. Most kind of you to join us. Chris is in China, in Hong Kong. Go ahead, go ahead, Chris. I am George. How are you this evening? Fantastic bandstorming opener, sir, tonight. I knew you. you'd crack it. Thank you. I knew Thank you'd you. crack it. Thanks. Look, um, you've covered so much. Of course, I'm opinionated, usually informed as well, by the way. Uh, little concern on the global warming matter with our one ex-liberal MP, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, from I was quite surprised at the line that he took, I must say. No, uh, it's always good to muddy the waters, sir. Um, if you can't face down your critics, you can't have an opinion, can you? Let's be honest about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, so there uh, we go. all however, opinions are welcome, Chris. All. However, let's get on to the disgraceful conduct of the Labour Party against a national treasure, a BAFTA award winning director who has covered social issues in the UK since the 60s, Ken Loach. How much lower does the Labour Party get? And, oh, and I think they'll, uh, they'll get lower yet, Chris. Uh, I think there's no depth uh, to how low uh, they can go. Uh, Ken Loach is, uh, is a national treasure. I preferred his earlier work myself, but there's no doubt uh, that he's an adornment to uh, British uh, civil society, even if he wants to break up Britain by supporting the Scottish independence. But uh, the idea that he should be kicked out of the Labour Party, a Labour Party in which Tony Blair uh, is still welcome, that uh, the... the the gang that brought us uh, the Iraq and the Afghan invasions uh, can still be in the Labour Party, while someone like Ken Loach is kicked out of it, is simply monstrous. But my question, okay. Chris, is why would well, you want to be in Keir Starmer's Labour Party? Well, I'm pleased to say um, I, I've been banned from the party twice um, <laughs> since... Uh, 2016, uh, the first ban, allegedly, I, I, I was, uh, they didn't like me being a bit of an ecologist. And the second ban was a critique I made of um, Kinnock, who, uh, of course, uh, I was born and bred, raised in uh, Torvine. Kinnock was just over the valley in reality. Um, uh, the party didn't like what I had to say about Kinnock, which is a view shared by many, many people in South Wales, the guy is a I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, Chris, you know? that that is true, but don't, don't uh, repeat may, may them. Don't repeat them now. Thing? Yeah, don't, yeah. don't repeat anything one, now about Kenneth. Go ahead. May I just add one other matter on Afghanistan? Yeah. It relates very much to Torvine. A, a lot of squaddies were recruited from yeah. South Wales. Yeah saw action in Afghanistan. Uh, one of my uh, friends from school, her daughter married a veteran of Afghanistan. He left his hand there. And like many others, I would want answers from Blair. For what reason did that man lose his hand? Very powerful. Yeah. Very powerfully Terrible. put, Terrible very powerfully sir. put, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing so. David is in Glasgow on the same subject. Uh, go ahead, David. Yeah, hi, George. How hi. are you doing? Good, thanks. Good, man. I, I was wanted to ask your, your, your thoughts and your opinions on why is it like Afghanistan is like so, um, so important to you particularly? Like, it seems like I, I don't really understood that, but I think you've got... So well, that, uh, it's, it's purely, uh, it was historically purely its geographical position. Uh, the British Empire in India was the, uh, was the jewel in the British imperial crown. Uh, yeah. The Russians uh, wanted uh, to uh, get their hands on it in the, 
in the 19th century and even before, is cheek by jowl with, with the former USSR, with the People's Republic of China, with the Islamic Republic of Iran, with Pakistan, which has a deep conflict with India over Kashmir. So it was strategically extremely important. But in recent times, it has been discovered to be the site of undreamt of treasures, of rare earth minerals, and the kind of things that we need uh, for our phones and for uh, all kinds of uh, new lithium, scientific, lithium, uh, electric cars, all of that is to be found in abundance in Afghanistan, which adds to uh, its geostrategic importance, uh, geographically speaking. Last word to you, David. You know, thanks. That's that interesting like, insight. I've just I've always been a bit uh, perturbed or why there's such uh, why so many interesting people. Interesting. Uh, so many empires. That. It's the graveyard of empires, Dave. Thanks for the call. Uh, Neil no. is in Canada. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Neil. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to make a couple of comments, one on Afghanistan, one on climate change yeah. with regards to all the stories we're hearing out of California. Yeah. Um, my, my, my nephew, as a Canadian Armed Forces Corporal, went to Afghanistan, and he did two tours of duty, and he came back terribly messed up mentally because he had, got, <clears throat> he had a guy die in his arms, etc. and that's pretty tough for an 18-year-old. Sure. Anyway, the, the two comments he made when he got home that I think might be of interest are, Canada here, we're there as are there as peacekeepers. The U.S. are there to fight a war. So why are we take, why are we the Canadians taking our orders from the Americans? Mm -hmm. Good question. And the other thing he said, and he said there are lots of young Canadians dying so the Canadian officers can make big names for themselves. Yeah, I think you shouldn't yeah. underestimate the military inertia, the careers that are made uh, amongst the top brass. Uh, Neil, you're going to have to call me on climate change next week because. We're out of time, and there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Norma, welcome. Hello, George. Um, just quickly, this is about the Taliban. Um, how do you negotiate change with Sharia law, which is what the uh, Taliban believe? Well, they're because entitled to uh, have their own law. We've got our own uh, law. Uh, yeah, but it's so we, cruel. It's, we it's cruel. It's cruel. Well, uh, I don't, I'm not sure that the occupants of the electric chair in the United States would think it other than cruel. Uh, every country has the right to its own legal system. Afghanistan is a more or less 100% Muslim country. It's entitled to uh, have Muslim law, isn't it? No, but I don't think two wrongs make a right. It's not right for somebody who steals to have their... Off, I well, mean I don't think it's right, but then I'm not an Afghan. Uh, what right have you got uh, in Bristol to decide what the penal code is in Afghanistan? Because I'm a human being. I'm Mal Malala. She is the one who was terrorized by the Taliban. Indeed, and she was shot in the head, yeah. Yeah, and she's tweeted how worried she is. I mean, I would Every right something. to be worried. She's got every right to yeah. be worried. Well, that's but what I'm worried. At the, the I'm end worried. of the day, you can't go around the world reordering it according to our uh, view of things, Norma. I'm surprised that you uh, don't seem to have grasped that point. 
Well, I suppose I have in a way, because I don't think it's right if you steal something. You have your blooming hand taken off. Yeah, but you're not going to send your son or his son uh, to go and die in Afghanistan uh, no, to, to, uphold, to uphold your, uh, your view of, of uh, pun crime and punishment. These are matters I, that you can only leave to the people in the country, Norma. But you need to negotiate a better deal with the Taliban. But, I, I, um, but you can't... That's like you, you said that. Yeah, and I, I strongly agree with that. But, for example, uh, in America you get the gas chamber. Uh, you get injected with lethal substances. You get electrocuted in the electric chair. But these are things, uh, or you can own 50 automatic weapons, but these are not things the American people would allow English people, still less Afghan people, to decide, are they? No, but I mean, they don't put you in the electric chair if you've stolen something, do they? You know, and have your hand taken off. Well, I think that's uh, Actually, they put people in the electric chair that haven't done anything at all. Uh, as well, long as they're the right, as long as they're the right color and the right class, do you not see where all this uh, Orientalism ends up, uh, Norma? When you well, take it upon yourself to decide how women should dress in someone else's country, whether they're allowed to have lipstick, uh, whether they are going to have their hand chopped off if they're a thief, that is the road to the invasion and occupation of other people's countries, which, quite apart from being a much bigger crime, a much bigger crime, doesn't work. If we've learned anything from today's events, surely, to God, it is that invading and occupying other people's countries doesn't work, engenders even more hatred and problems around the world. Don't forget to get the podcast. It was up 150% last week. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.